science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about unconventional solutions and things that seem like good ideas at the time. Whether that's driving across the country by yourself or eating worms. Unlike our storytellers today, I have never done either of those things. But in terms of ideas that seem good at the time, I can tell you that Story Glider has had the bright idea to put on more than 25 shows this fall for a total of nearly 60 shows this year, which is a new record for us. We'll be in all our usual home stage cities, New York, D.C., Boston, St. Louis, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Toronto, Vancouver, and Wellington. But you'll also be able to catch us in new and exotic places like Hartford, Connecticut, Dallas, Texas, Ames, Iowa, Madison, Wisconsin, Berlin, Germany, Manchester and Cambridge in the UK, and even my hometown of Charleston, West Virginia. Stay tuned to storyclider.org and our social media accounts to find out more as these shows are officially announced. We are so excited exhausted just thinking about everything we have to do to prepare but also so excited so for now let's check out some of the bright ideas that our storytellers have for you today our first story is from kate greathead it was recorded in april 2018 at caveat in new york city the theme that night was diagnosis So I was 24 years old, and I was driving across the country by myself uh, from New York City to California, and everything was going fine until I crossed the border into Wyoming. I'd always thought of Wyoming as, like, having mountains and, and like, stuff like that, but uh, this portion was completely flat. You could see for miles and miles. There were, like, no houses or trees, just land and sky, which is which is kind of beautiful, but also sort of existentially terrifying. Um, Anyway, that wasn't the problem. The problem was the wind. The wind was really, really intense. You know when you're on an airplane and the turbulence gets so bad that the pilot comes on and he's like, everyone put on your seatbelts now and no one's allowed to go to the bathroom. It was like that, except in a car and I was the pilot. Uh, exits in Wyoming, on the Wyoming interstate are few and far between, but finally I spotted that little green sign in the distance, and uh, I pulled off, and I pulled into a gas station, and I walked inside, and the woman behind the counter was like out of a David Lynch movie or something. <laughs> she just had this stone-cold look on her face, and she was wearing a lot of makeup, and it reminded me of the makeup they put on a corpse to make it look more alive but it just makes them look more dead. So I go over to this woman and I explain my situation. Hi, I'm driving from New York City to California, and I don't know if you've listened to the forecast, but there's really, the wind is out of control, dangerous out there. Do you mind if I hang out in your gas station until the wind passes? Here's how she responds. If you're waiting for the wind to pass, you'll never leave Wyoming. The way she spoke these words, not a trace of emotion or empathy on her face, gave me the impression she'd been waiting her whole life to deliver a line like that. 
to a pathetic, neurotic New Yorker like me. A truck driver who'd overheard us talking came over and explained to me that uh, what would be considered a windy day in any other state is a normal day in Wyoming. Um, so what was going on outside, there was, there was no way around it. I had no choice but to get back in my car and, and return to the interstate. And so that's what I did. And I'm driving, and my car feels like a dryer on the spin cycle, and my knuckles are turning white. And it feels like at any moment a gust of wind is going to come and just poof, blow my car off the road and just send me skittering into the abyss. Like, game over. Um, Wyoming, by the way, is this stretch that I was driving through is over 400 miles long. So this isn't like Connecticut we're talking about. Um, as I continue my journey through Wyoming, I started to enter another state, the kind that begins with sweating and ends with thinking you're going to die. Panic attacks were nothing new to me. I began getting them after college. I would be going through my day when all of a sudden a cold white terror would descend and whatever I was doing at the moment no longer mattered because I was about to die. That's what panic attacks feel like for me. Um, so I continue to, I have no choice, I just continue to drive ahead and um, finally I see another little green sign, another exit and I'm so relieved to get off and just have another little break. But as I approach the sign for this town, it says, Lost Springs, Wyoming, population one. <laughs> and you can look it up on the, on the internet, it's true, except now that it has four, four people live there, according to Google. But anyway, it just seemed like a little intrusive to stop in a town where one person lives. So I kept on driving. Miles and miles and miles later, there's another town, and this one's like a normal town where more than one person lives. And on the sign, it says there's uh, gas, lodging, payphone, and a hospital. And at this point, I'm still in full-blown panic attack mode, and I, that just seems like the best news to me. I, I, need to go, I need to get to the hospital. So I pull off the exit, I find the hospital, I park my car, and I'm about to enter the front doors when all of a sudden I start to plan out in my head, like, what am I going to say when I get inside? I should explain my... I should explain that I'm having trouble breathing because, oh, I forgot, I forgot a part of the story. Part of my panic attacks, part of what makes them so scary is that I have asthma. And when I get panic attacks, it triggers my asthma, which exacerbates the panic, which makes the asthma worse. So it's sort of like a chicken and egg situation. And um, in... Uh, sorry, I just backtrack a little bit. The reason I'm driving... So when I had these panic attacks after college, I went to a doctor... And uh, well, my medical doctor diagnosed me as having asthma, and my therapist diagnosed me as having anxiety. And they, I was put on all sorts of medications. At one point, I was like on Zoloft, albuterol, steroid inhaler, beta blockers. Nothing worked. The panic attacks continued. And I blamed them on life in New York City and how stressful it is to live here. And I had this idea in my head that California would be like an easier, safer place to live. And that's what I'm doing right now in my car in the middle of Wyoming. I'm moving to California. Um, but now I'm outside this hospital, and I'm, uh, I'm about to go in, and I'm trying to think of how I'm going to explain myself to the, to the uh, when, once I get inside, like, should I go to the ER or should I go to the psych ward? Um, and as I'm, like, trying to figure this out, I remember um, 
this study that I learned about in a college psychology class where a bunch of PhD students checked themselves into a mental hospital as an experiment to see what would happen. What happened is that they hated it there and they wanted to get out. And the doctors went on this power trip and they're like, no, we'll tell you when you're ready to leave. And I just had this sudden fear of being like trapped in the psychiatric ward of a hospital off of the interstate in Wyoming. And I decided, you know what? I'm just, I'm, I'm not gonna go inside. I'm gonna get back in my car and I'm gonna keep breathing and I'm gonna keep driving. I'm gonna get the hell out of Wyoming. <laughs> um, the good news is I made it, it worked. I, I arrived in California. The bad news is I discovered life was just as difficult and scary there for the same reasons that had been in New York. I was, I was living in San Francisco and I just had trouble like with this same relationship problems and job and money and all the your typical 20 something issues, trying to figure out like what I was good at and what I was supposed to do with my life. San Francisco was not the answer to my problem. So I moved to Louisiana. And after a month there, I went to Pennsylvania, and then there was a brief stint in Vermont, and then the Hudson Valley. I spent the remainder of my 20s bouncing around from place to place, trying to find a place that just felt safe and easier. Um, and eventually it dawned on me that it wasn't any of these places that were scary, it was adult life. And there's no way to escape that. And in some ways, this revelation was a relief because it meant I didn't have to keep moving around. I could return to New York City, which is where I'm from, and has always felt the most like home to me. So I've been back here for a number of years, and I'm now 35, and uh, I recently got married, and I published this book I was working on for years, and I'm about to have a baby, and on paper, so it looks like I have some semblance of a career and adult life on paper, but the truth is, I still find life pretty scary a lot of the time. And um, I recently went to um, back to my old therapist to talk specifically about my fears about um, being pregnant and having a baby, and I was kind of hoping she'd diagnose me with pregnancy, uh, anxiety, and depression, and because uh, that would mean like my fears were irrational and like hormonally based, and they go away once I had the baby. But instead, she said everything I was thinking and feeling was completely rational, <laughs> <laughs> which just wasn't that comforting. And when I asked, like when I told her my big concern, like what if, like when the baby's born, like I project my issues and complexes onto this poor little kid, and then he grows up with problems. And, uh, cause like, I love my mom, but like, I really think that a lot of my issues come from her. <laughs> and my therapist said, of course you will. There's no such thing as parents who don't screw up their kids somehow. How do you think I have a thriving practice? <laughs> and then she recommended transcendental meditation. Somehow, like, the internet found out about this because I started, you know when you get ads? Like, all of a sudden, I started getting ads, like, pop-up ads, like, check out Transcendental Meditation. And there's, like, a class in Manhattan, and they were having, like, you could sign up. They wanted you to register, and I, I, I did it. And I went to an orientation session um, downtown, and, and we're all in this little room, and we go around, and we say why we're there, what, pro what specific problems we have that we think Transcendental Meditation meditation. <laughs> Freudian slip can fix 
And um, I told them, like, I'm really scared of light. You know, I just, I'm an anxious person. And they were like, this will fit. Trust, trust us. This will fix you. Um, so I've, I've signed up for the class. It hasn't started yet. I just only went to that orientation session. It's happening in a few weeks. And I'm cautious. I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful that it could help. But I'm beginning to think that, like, I always sort of hope that, like, one day I'd wake up like an anxiety-free person. But the older I get, the more I think that anxiety in me is sort of like the wind to Wyoming. And, and, and instead of like trying to fight it, maybe the trick is to accept it and to keep on breathing and to keep on driving. And, and th- that's it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> That was Kate Greathead. Kate is a nine-time Moth Storytelling Slam champion. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Vanity Fair, and on NPR's Moth Radio Hour. She was a subject in the American version of the British Up documentary series. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, the writer Teddy Wayne, and her first novel, Laura and Emma, was published in March 2018. I'm reading it right now, and I highly recommend it. So if you read it too, I don't know, maybe we can get together for a book club or something. Our next story today is from Tracy Chong. It was recorded in October 2017 at High Noon Saloon in Madison, Wisconsin. It's part of a show we produced in partnership with University of Wisconsin-Madison, the Wisconsin School of Business, Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, Starting Block, and Upstart and D2P. I live in a tiny 150-square-foot studio. Not by myself, but with over 5,000 roommates. At night, I don't need a white noise machine to fall asleep because I can hear them rustling and crawling around. (laughs) But maybe I do need some noise-canceling headphones instead. So this is not my first encounter with the sound of creatures rustling around at night. In southern Illinois, there's a very special road called in the Shawnee National Forest. Twice a year, a mass migration happens. A mass migration of snakes, reptiles, and amphibians as they cross this very unique country road from cliffs and bluffs to the vast swamps as the seasons change. So what was I doing in in Snake Road? Yes, this road is actually named Snake Road. And my business in Snake Road was not to study snakes, but to study worms. My first formal encounter with worms was with freshwater planarians, the masters of regeneration. Some of you might know them from biology class, where like in Game of Thrones, beheadings happen rather frequently. But in this case, it is not followed by a bloody death. Instead, they just regrow a new head, all without breaking a sweat. When I was a graduate student, I helped with a comparative study to find out why some planarians can regenerate better than others. And as it turns out, one of the most difficult parts of this project was to find those elusive worms. Unfortunately, we couldn't just order them off the internet. So I actually had to go on worm hunting adventures to find these worms in the wild. 
my colleague James and I, over the span of two years, made multiple trips to Snake Road. We, and Snake Road is very special because this is one of the places where we can, in Illinois where we can find these worms. And sometimes we went by ourselves, sometimes we were joined by curious and helpful lab mates. We spent days turning over thousands of pea-sized rocks in the stream, often encountering many other different species of worms before encountering the rare planarians that we came for. They were very good at hiding. At best, it was zen-like and calming. I would glance at the beautiful cliffs and listen to the gentle sounds of the stream. At worst, it was mind-numbing and frustrating, especially when the conditions were extreme, being bitten by swarms of mosquitoes in the hot, humid summer, and dipping our hands in cold, freezing water for hours during the winter months. At the start of each trip, we would wish so hard that today would be the lucky day where the worms would just be hanging out. But of course, this was never the case. Once, amidst the peace and quiet, I heard a soft rumbling sound. James and I locked eyes, and he said with a very straight face, a wild boar? Shit! The image of a wild boar rushing straight at me flashed before my eyes. I ran through the different scenarios in my head. Should I climb a tree? Wait, could I even do that? Should I run? To where? Fight? Hmm. And then I heard Sam laughing, and he confessed that it was his stomach rumbling. Oh yeah, feeling hungry during those long afternoons was pretty common. And then there was the fear of poisonous snakes. They are cotton mouths, also known as water moccasins in southern Illinois. I remember reading how they are poisonous, producing toxins that can disrupt blood clotting and destroy tissues and cells. Such a scary thought. But the scariest part, though, was when I had to pee. <laughs> Imagine being this close to the ground, covered with long grass, branches, fallen leaves, not knowing what's, un what's hiding underneath, but knowing that there's probably a snake, maybe a poisonous one, lurking somewhere in there. I remember my routine rather clearly. I would use my feet and a stick to sweep the ground before squatting down. Even then, my legs would be shaking, and even the slightest rustle would cause my heart to skip a beat. But when I was done, though, it was such a relief, in more, in more ways than one. <laughs> Finally, we collected enough worms and brought them back to the lab to investigate whether polarity, which end is which in the animal, is important when it comes to regenerating a new body part. Then my next adventure, my next worm adventure, brought me to the Bay Area. It was a great time. Exciting science, gorgeous weather, there were mountains to climb and hills to hike. 
I was on a very tight budget though, so this meant that I rarely ate out. And when I did, it was very special, and I would pack my leftovers for my next meal. One night, after a lovely dinner with my best friend Nick, I headed home, happy and full. At the bus station, a homeless man, clearly hungry, asked me if I needed my leftovers. At that time, my leftovers were very precious to me, so I said, "Yes, I need them." The moment those words left my mouth, I felt like the most horrible, selfish person. There I was, able to go out and have a nice meal. Able to go home and fall asleep in a nice, cozy, warm bed, and yet I could not give my leftovers to someone who really needed them. At that moment, I made a simple promise to myself that for as long as I could afford it, if I had leftovers and met someone who needed them, I would give them away. From that incident, though, I've always wanted to do even more to alleviate hunger and food shortage. Well, as it turns out, the answer had been in front of me right along. After years of working with gentle and harmless flatworms and roundworms, I now work in a lab that studies parasitic worms. One of these parasites, the tapeworm, has a rather complicated life cycle that involves developing inside an insect, a beetle, and the larval stage of this beetle is known as the mealworm. Many mornings, I would watch my colleague Edward tending to his mealworms, and once we joked how delicious and yummy these mealworms would be. Actually, it was more like me joking, and Edward, well, he looked rather grossed out at the thought of eating his mealworms. I had always known that people ate insects. But at the same time, I was starting to hear more and more about using insects as a potential source of protein. The more I read, the more convinced I was that using insects as food could be a sustainable solution to the problem of food and nutrition shortage, especially as our population increases, both in the U.S. and in the rest of the world. Well. Of course, I had to test this out for myself first. The first insect I ate was bondegi. Bondegi is silkworm larvae. It's a South Korean street food, and it's often found boiled and served in paper cups. We found our bondegi at a Korean grocery store in a can. With much hesitation and trepidation. I tasted my first bondegi with a Korean friend, and it was so bad. <laughs> I had tears streaming down my face, trying not to gag. I couldn't decide if I should swallow it and be done with it, or spit it out because it was mushy and it tasted like wet wood. I then had the brilliant idea of roasting it because I thought, oh, roasting it would make it taste better. But that again was a horrible, terrible mistake because roasting the bondegi caused the whole place to smell like rotting wet wood. <laughs> the smell was so bad, and fortunately, my friends were understanding. 
At this point, I was very, very worried. How would my idea of using insects as a sustainable food source work if I hated the taste of insects? <laughs> well, fortunately, the next bugs that I tried were the mealworms. I can still remember how relieved I felt when I took my first bite of a roasted mealworm. It was delicious. <laughs> it was crunchy, it had a mild nutty flavor. I could eat lots of this. <laughs> so as it turns out, mealworms have a great potential as a food source because they have high protein content and they are easy to raise. So yes, my 5,000 roommates who keep me company at night are my mealworms. But rest assured, these mealworms come from a happy farm and they have not been in contact with the parasites in lab. <laughs> so now I work with what I love, cooking and worms, and feeding my friends and colleagues who thankfully are quite open to being food testers. Even Edward has been convinced to try a mealworm. Of all my adventures and challenges with worms, I have a feeling that the best, but maybe most difficult challenge is yet to come. I have to convince all of you that mealworms are delicious and nutritious. Thank you. That was Tracy Chong. Tracy found her passion working with invertebrates as a graduate student at the University of Illinois. She is currently part of a team at the Morgridge Institute for Research studying parasitic worms that cause the debilitating disease schistosomiasis. Aside from worms and science, Tracy is passionate about entrepreneurship and food. StoryClider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Liz Neely, Paula Croxon, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the High Noon Saloon for hosting these shows, and to all of you for having the bright idea to listen to this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.